Do you know a teen who's struggling with an unexpected pregnancy? If so, this podcast is for you. Joining me today on the show is Roland Warren. Roland's an inspirational servant leader with a heart for Christ and a mind for business. After 20 years in the corporate world, Roland spent 11 years as president of National Fatherhood Initiative before joining CareNet in 2012 as president and CEO. Roland's the author of two books, Bad Dads of the Bible, Eight Mistakes Every Good Dad Can Avoid, and Raising Sons of Promise, a guide for single mothers of boys, which draws on his life experience as a boy raised in a single mother home to provide actionable advice and counsel for single mothers and those who seek to help them. Okay, let's get to my interview with Roland Warren on this edition of Parenting Great Kids. Roland, I've been so excited about this interview, and I'm so grateful you're joining me today on the podcast. Oh, delighted to be with you. Always fun to be with Meg. <laughs> it is fun. We do have fun. Yes. You sort of uh, are a man of many talents. You've uh, really worked the whole spectrum from Goldman Sachs and then the Fatherhood Initiative, and now you're championing uh, pro-life issues working with CareNet. Can you talk a little bit about your personal journey and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, you know, it's so funny because this was absolutely not where I expected to be. I mean, I, I went to a Princeton undergrad and, uh, you know, my hope and, and thought at that time was really to, to uh, actually be a dentist. <laughs> which, really? Which, I never yeah. knew that about you. Yes. Wow. I, yeah. yeah, my plan uh -huh. was to be a dentist. Yes, I wanted to be one of those. And mm -hmm. uh, when I was in college, I got my girlfriend pregnant between my um, sophomore and junior year. She was a freshman at Princeton and I was a, a sophomore. We got pregnant between then. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, um, it really sort of changed a lot of kind of where my life went. Um, we were you know, uh, encouraged to abort our, our son uh, when she went for her uh, her pregnancy test. The, the nurse brought the test out and said, you're pregnant. And without even taking an extra breath, said, now, of course, you're going to have an abortion. And and she said, I don't want to. I want to I want to have my baby. I want to get married. And the nurse was like, well, how are you going to do that <laughs> and graduate right. from Princeton? And, and yeah. she says, well, I, I really want to do that. And how are you going to do that and be a doctor? And uh, and she said, no, I really, I, I want to get married. And so we did. So we got married. I was 20. She was 19. And, you know, I, I finished school. Um, she finished uh, Princeton, uh, mm -hmm. not with one baby, but with two. Actually, we had both <laughs> of our kids at Princeton. Yeah. But wow. I, you know, right after that happened, I mean, talking about getting sort of shoved into adulthood, that happened absolutely at that point. And so I took a job with IBM because I needed to provide for my wife and my my son. And just turns out I had a knack for sales and marketing. And it turns out that I had poor uh, spatial orientation and very limited dexterity, which are all two key skills you need to be a dentist. Yes, <laughs> so, you do. Yeah, that would be so, kind of cruel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'd be like, eh, that's good enough. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, but anyway, yeah. you know, as a physician, so my yeah. wife is a doctor. I was mm -hmm. going to be a dentist, but instead I became, you know, a businessman. And that really was where I thought, you know, God, God had me, you know, I was going to be in the business world and, and, and kind of do that thing. And I was there for about 20 years before I went to National Fatherhood Initiative and then to CareNet. 
Mm -hmm. So how did you get from National Fatherhood Initiative to CareNet? Because here you are, yeah. you know, I, I don't mean to be biased, but it's really kind of the way it is. Here you're working with all these men, encouraging all these men. And then you go to CareNet, where historically men have not been involved. So you're, you're dealing with a lot of women who are running the centers yeah. and probably a lot of young mothers who are coming into the centers. So how did you get there? Well, you know, it's interesting kind of going back to that the story of what happened when I was in college. So I became a father very early. I had also grown up without my dad, which is kind of what really mm. drew me to National Fatherhood Initiative, where I left the business world to go to National Fatherhood Initiative. But when I got to National Fatherhood Initiative, I, I said to myself, well, how do you change the world when you only have 12 people and you're not Jesus? And I said, partnerships. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so I started looking at, at organizations that were at the nexus of children and family uh, that should have a perspective about fatherhood, should integrate father involvement into what they do because it's going to help them accomplish their mission and vision. And one of the partners that I looked at was the pregnancy center world. And CareNet is, you know, it's the largest evangelical network of pregnancy centers. So I went to, to my predecessor's predecessor and said, hey, what are you doing to engage fathers? And, you know, he says nothing. And I was sort of flabbergasted. I mean, I didn't have all the data about the impact of, of a guy's involvement in, in the pregnancy decision from a sort of a, a statistical perspective, but I knew my own situation. For mm -hmm. the first five months of, of my wife's pregnancy, uh, I was the only one who knew she was pregnant other than her. Wow. It was just the two of us for five mm -hmm. months. And so I, although it was her body and her choice legally and practically, the reality was that my decision impacted that choice. My willingness to say to her, I'll be a husband to you and a father to our child growing inside of you impacted that choice. So I just knew intuitively some, you're missing something by, by not engaging men. So we started a partnership uh, with CareNet uh, to provide fatherhood resources and, and ultrasounds into pregnancy centers. And um, some years later, uh, one of the, the board chair came to me and said, hey, what do you think about leaving National Fatherhood Initiative to, to be a part of CareNet? And initially I was like, I, this fatherhood thing is, is, is such a part of me and such a part of my heart. I couldn't see it, but God made it pretty clear that I needed to move in this direction. And, and frankly, all the stuff that I kind of learned at National Fatherhood Initiative, we brought a lot of that whole father involvement uh, piece uh, to the life work that we do here at CareNet. So mm -hmm. looking back, I can clearly see all of that, you know, leading, leading to this moment. So, yeah. It makes so much sense because now you're going to be able to develop a whole part of care net and pregnancy that has yet to has not historically been yeah. developed. Before we move on, because you and I are obviously uh, staunch pro-lifers and believe in the sanctity yeah. of life and the baby. You made a comment to me last week about the role of fathers and how yeah. a young woman who's pregnant and scared and unmarried comes into making a pregnancy care center planned parenthood and she's going to make decisions about whether she's going to keep the baby or not talk to me about the role of the boyfriend father of the baby yeah and his and his influence and that's frankly a significant thing because life decisions need life support and a woman is making a decision about an abortion from conception to birth based on the support she doesn't have or does have after birth. So this whole issue is about nine months and one second. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is that from conception to birth, if she can't see that she has that support, she's much more likely to have an abortion. So a big epiphany 
for me was when I actually started to look at the data, 86% of the women that have abortions are unmarried. That's Guttmacher's data. Guttmacher does a lot of the research for the abortion industry. 86% of the women that have abortions are unmarried. Well, what does that mean? Well, an unmarried woman is less likely to see that she has support after birth. So she's more likely to have an abortion. And that's frankly why my wife was less likely to have an abortion because she had a guy who said, I'll be a husband to you and a father to the child growing inside of you. So for me, you know, there's two sanctities here when, when you're when you're thinking about this woman who's facing a pregnancy decision. Uh, certainly there's the sanctity of life issue, no question about that. But there's another one, which is the mm -hmm. sanctity of marriage and family consistent with God's design. And, and you really see that in the birth of Christ. Here you have Mary, facing an unplanned pregnancy from a human perspective, hopes and dreams for her life that did not include a child at this time and in this way. And the angel comes to her and what does she do? She doesn't focus on the uncertainty of what she doesn't know regarding the child. She focuses on the certainty of what she does know, that there's a life growing inside of her, but not a life worth sacrificing. But what does God do, right, to make sure that Mary's unplanned pregnancy is not a crisis pregnancy? What does he do in this moment? Well, he goes to Joseph and Joseph has a plan. And, it's, and he has a similar dilemma as any guy today who's abortion-minded. He's going to put her away quietly, which means essentially it's like a cultural version of an abortion because you couldn't put the baby away, so you put the woman and the baby away. And the angel comes to him with two very specific things. He says, listen, I want you to be a husband to her and a father to the child growing inside of her. So what you actually see in the biblical narrative, in the birth of Christ, here's a woman facing an unplanned pregnancy from a human perspective. Here's a guy, right? And what does God do? He creates a family. So that really inspired me in terms of our work, because what we see is that the guy is the most influential in her decision to abort. We did a national survey with LifeWay, and we talked to women who had had abortions, and we asked them, who did you talk to about your abortion decision? The guy, number one, not even close. Who was the most influential? She said the guy, not even close. Then we surveyed men, asked them the same question. Who did she talk to? Me, the guy, right? Mm -hmm. And then asked the guys, who was the most influential in her decision to abort? He said, I was. So here we have the women who have abortions and the men who participate in abortions both say that the guy is the most influential. And my challenge uh, to us is from, from a pro, uh, we talk about ourselves as being pro-abundant life, not just pro-life perspective is, the woman and the guy are both saying he's the most influential, but yet in many ways we built an entire movement that doesn't have any on-ramp for him. And that's because if you're not focusing on the sanctity of marriage and family with consistent with God's design, then you end up in a dynamic where it's about helping the woman and saving the baby, but not building a family, which is what actually breaks the cycle. I'm a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. We had one unplanned pregnancy, right? Yeah. And we got married and built a family. Mm -hmm. So that's this hope and vision that you see in the birth of Christ. And certainly from our standpoint, that's a comprehensive, biblically based mm -hmm. from the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament way of looking at the life issue. And we talk about that here, not like being just pro-life, but being pro-abundant life based on John 10, 10. I just thought that was fascinating because when we look at pro-life issues or pro-abortion issues, we hear women talk about it. You never hear about the man. You know, it's it's women championing their right to do whatever they want with their bodies, so on and so forth. But when you told me that it's really the boyfriend or the father of the baby who has an enormous influence on whether she brings the baby to term or has an abortion, I was astonished because I thought, well, it's clearly just the women going off and making their own decisions, but it really isn't that way. 
And so our fathers, the father of the baby, very instrumental in having her choose to keep the baby as well. I'd be interested to see where fathers yeah. sort of really kind of want to push the women, if you will. Yeah, no, they, they absolutely are. And, you know, it's interesting because one of the challenges that we have is really getting men to feel like they have agency to step into that decision. Because on the pro-choice side, we've said, you know, the mantra is her body, her choice. In other words, to the guy, not your body, not your choice. In other words, you make like Adam and just we'll tell you what you need to be doing. Right. <laughs> when you right. have an opinion, we'll give it to you. Right. That kind of thing. But frankly, on the pro-life side, we've we've kind of done a similar thing in a different way in that when we frame the issue as it's all about the woman. And so if you look in the public square, folks, there are two kind of perspectives. One is about saving the baby or it's about saving the baby and helping the woman. Well, again, those are very important things. But the reality is that if you look at God's design for family, it's actually about engaging the guy and trying to build a strong marriage. I mean, here's a practical way to, to look at it. I mean, if, if a woman came to you and said she was she was pregnant and, and it wasn't good news from her perspective and you could change everything except the fact that she was pregnant, what would you want to have happen? Would you just want her to give birth to the baby? I mean, that, is that it? So you just want to build a sea of single mother homes? Well, as a Christian, uh, probably not, right? We know about the data related to father absence. No, would you want the guy to be involved? Yes, well, what would you want him to be? A baby daddy just coming around every now and then bringing pampers? Well, no. I mean, would you want him to live with her? Well, uh, yeah, well, in what context? I mean, would you want that relationship to be a stable relation? I mean, what you ultimately would want, if you could wave a magic wand, it's from a Christian perspective, you'd want them to build a high quality, low conflict marriage. And even beyond that, you'd want it to be a godly marriage so that those children are raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Mm -hmm. So if that's what you want, if that's what you want, then you should actually build a ministry model and perspective in the public square that actually shoots for that high idea, regardless of the low ideas that people may be, may be living to. Mm -hmm. And and I'll give you another point here. I've been to so many pregnancy center dinners where a woman is up there saying that she, you know, is going to bring her child into the world. And that she had made that decision and the boyfriend or whatever was being silent on the issue because that's what men have been told to do. Mm -hmm. And then she makes a decision. And I've heard so many times women say, well, he said, I'm so excited. I really wanted you to do that. And, and she's like, well, why didn't you say anything? Well, we basically told men, this is not your issue. No womb, no say. And that works for the other side because the, the objective is to isolate her. But from our side, right, it's around supporting her and the men need to speak into that decision to say, listen, I'm gonna be a husband to you and a father to the child growing inside of you, or at least that I'm gonna connect on the, on the fatherhood side. And then from our standpoint, we wanna to try to move them towards a marriage relationship, a high quality, low conflict uh, relationship, because we know that that's the best environment for children to grow up in. And, and I just really believe that when you're, when you're doing work, you should make your strategy the high idea that you want that's in the best interest of all involved and, and certainly building a, a God-honoring family is, is really what we're called to do, particularly as Christians. Mm -hmm. I love that because most people don't know that. You know, they view pro-lifers and they view, uh, you know, crisis pregnancy centers as people who our only goal is to save the baby and we don't care at all about what happens after the baby's born. I've had people tell me that so much. All you care about is making sure the baby uh, is, stays alive and he's born, but you don't care after that. And it's not true at all. So how are the crisis pregnancy centers or the, the pregnancy centers that you're in charge of, what steps are they taking 
in order to implement this bigger structure where we involve dads and say, look, it isn't just about saving this baby's life, which is enormous. I mean, that alone for me would be um, enough. But to say what we want for this child is a healthy life after the baby's born. So tell us about what you're doing to encourage this marriage system and to bring the father in there. Well, it, it's an enormous culture shift because, you know, the pregnancy centers movement in a lot of ways is sort of sort of like, you know, to reach that proverbial Mary, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I and mean, that's that's the design to pr reach the proverbial Mary and to save the proverbial Jesus. That kind of perspective is sort of how it's framed. So it really is sort of a paradigm shift for people to step back and go like, wait a minute you know, what is God's design for family? So a key part of that was the messaging on the front end from our standpoint where I, God really gave me this insight about this nativity narrative of the birth of Christ and how what you see modeled there was building a family, mm -hmm. right? Jesus certainly could have survived in this world and thrived in this world without Joseph. Don't get it twisted. But he came into this world in a way that accomplished God's purpose without violating his principle. In other words, he came into this structure, if you will, a covenant relationship where Mary and Joseph were essentially in a marriage that had not been consummated. Mm -hmm. So I started really first just casting that vision you because the vision is the why behind the what, right? So why should you be engaging men from a biblical perspective? Well, because we've got the example in the first chapter, the first book of the New Testament, where that's exactly what God did when there was an unplanned pregnancy. And that was there as a model for us. That was the first piece, really casting that vision for folks to start to connect to. And then now from a practical programming standpoint, then now we need to build on ramps to be able to bring men into the pregnancy center as part of that. So we started working with our pregnancy centers to train them around men's ministry. Now about 66% of them have some form of men's outreach in some way, shape or form. And this has grown dramatically over the 10 years that I've been here, started talking about this. So now we're bringing uh, men's ministry coordinators, fatherhood ministry coordinators who are coming in, who are then offering uh, programming for fathers. Uh, one of the resources that we developed, uh, that we offer is a, is a resource called Dr. Dad. And it's a resource specifically designed to help fathers around infant and toddler health and safety, mm -hmm. the well child, the sick child, the safe child, and the injured child. Mm. And it's a, very, a practical workshop. And, and really who developed that was my wife. And this is just a kind of amazing thing because my wife is a family practice doctor. I know you're a pediatrician. When I was a national fatherhood initiative, she realized, she said, you know what? I never talked to the guys for the most part in these prenatal visits. They just stand yeah, over there in the corner. Exactly. I, I always do. I always do this with the moms, but I don't engage the guys. And she said, so she actually worked with National Fatherhood Initiative for about a year and a half when she was looking to go into a new practice. And she developed this, this curricula called Dr. Dad, uh, which does that well child, sick child, safe child, injured child, all the kinds of things that, that can help engage. Well, that's a practical way that a guy immediately can start getting the skills that he needs in order to be an involved father. Because the reality is that that support that that mother needs, and you know this very well, right from the beginning is, you know, do you know how to swaddle? Do you know how to take a temperature? Do right. you understand how to read the temperament of our child? Are you engaged that way? That's what takes the pressure off the mom so that she feels that she has that support. And if that happens on the front end, so what we try to do is to get the guys to go through some level of fatherhood support during that first nine months so that she knows this guy is not only has sort of the motivation, 
but also has the skills needed to assist me in this pregnancy. And that helps seal her pregnancy decision. And the other thing that happens from that is men start to birth a child in their mind. A woman, her body changes, everything changes. For men, it starts in your head. And so when you start acting like a father, because you're learning how to care for your, your infant and your toddler, guess what? <laughs> then it sets into your head. And then that guy becomes an advocate again, because these life decisions are kind of like this. I mean, these women don't say, I'm going to have my baby if they're abortion-minded or abortion-vulnerable. I'm going to have my baby and it's a done deal. It's, there's some up and some down here with that. And the reality is that you want the guy who is the most influential in the decision to say, now, honey, we're going to bring this child into the world. I've got you. We're going to support. I want you. I want the baby. I want you. And I want us. And when a woman has that, then she's much more likely to make a life decision. So the practical hands-on skill training is such a critical part of what we do at CareNet and what we're trying to build out uh, within our, our network of pregnancy centers. I love to hear that. What percent of men or fathers will come in and accept that? Out of 100 women, how many of the, the fathers of the baby will come in and go, yeah, I'll do that? Yeah, it's tough work, I have to tell you, frankly. Um, probably at this point, we're probably somewhere less than 10% uh, in terms of the entire network. Some pregnancy centers are more than others. I have some pregnancy centers that are seeing over a thousand men a year, and there are others that are still struggling with this because it, it's a philosophical mm -hmm. change that's really swimming up, up upstream. But what we are finding is that when you do that, it makes an enormous decision. In fact, when the father comes, right, because there's two things. There's one about him getting the training. So I'm going to say that's a separate thing. But the other piece is him being involved in the ultrasound. Mm. We have found that when the father comes to the ultrasound, the woman is much more likely, like much more likely, like in the 90 percentile kind of range, likely to, to bring the child into the world because then the guy sees that this is a, a living human being, his child, and that and men are visual, and it starts to set in his mind uh, that piece. So it's hard work. It's heavy lifting in a lot of ways. Uh, it's a paradigm shift. And frankly, we're trying to undo 40 plus years of focus that excluded dads. And you know the cultural narrative. You've written a lot about dads and what happens there. You know how difficult th th this work is. But we think it's so important because he is the most influential in, in that decision. And uh, we think from God's design, it, it's critical that we engage him right from the beginning. Yeah. And I think that men are groomed or, or taught not to be involved, of course. Not only that, they're taught that, yeah. you know, they're really not necessary in the family, even if you have a 15-year-old. I mean, you know the yeah. drill. And so really, we need to reverse yeah. all of that thinking. And a lot of women are responsible for that. You know, hard-headed, strong-willed women are like, no, 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 I got it all, I got it all. Parents, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Roland Warren. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more of my conversation. Welcome back to Parenting Great Kids. My guest today is Roland Warren. I want to turn the corner a little bit because a big part of what needs to happen um, in the Care Net uh, Network is you need people to come in, maybe older people, and sort of disciple and teach these young people. And one of the, you know, from sort of sitting on the outside, I've always encouraged people, give your money. This is a great reason, you know, give your money here and support them and support them. But there's support and then there's support. So talk about what you really need from the community 
to make the work that you're doing really successful? Yeah, I, one of the, the narratives that I've just done the best I can to try to push back on is that the pregnancy center movement is the answer to a post-Roe environment. The reality is the pregnancy center movement is a part of the answer, is a part of the answer. We, we do critical work, but frankly, there are only about 3,500 pregnancy centers across the entire nation. Mm -hmm. So the reality, and, and frankly, we were already busy. Right. <laughs> so it's a part of it, but the, but the insight that God gave me though, is that it's actually the role of the church mm -hmm. The, the key role of the church that has been missing. And a lot of that has to do because, you know, um, I always tell folks, I said, you know, if you talk to, you know, a lot of Christians and you ask them, are they pro-life? And they say yes. And then you ask them to prove it. They'll tell you who they voted for. <laughs> right. And so exactly. You're, You're right. 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 They'll tell you who they voted right. for. Right. Or they might tell you about some material support they provided, yeah. but that's it. Now, here's the thing. The life issue uh, needs a political, judicial, legislative response clearly and needs material support. Mm -hmm. But as a Christian, it's not primarily political or material, it's discipleship. And that was one of the insights that God gave me when I came here, that we should be viewing the life issue primarily through the lens of discipleship. In other words, anchoring it in the Great Commission. So God's design for families in the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. God's call to discipleship is in the last chapter of the first book of the New Testament. And the discipleship piece is key because, see, if you think about it in that lens, which Christians do in other areas, water for the thirsty, food for the hungry, clothes for the naked, homes for the homeless, Christians instinctively understand that those good works that we do are on ramps to discipleship. Because if you do those good works and they're not on ramps to discipleship, they're social services, not Christianity. Jesus had these people that said, you know, that basically came, this one's got too many demons, this one has too many husbands, this one has too much pride, this one has too much money, right? And what did he do? He met them at their point of need, Right. Right. But then he called them into a discipleship relationship. And so my observation has been that Christians are not viewing the life issue that way because of the political narrative. It's outside the church as opposed to inside the church. So the first thing that changes everything is when you start to view this as a discipleship issue. So that woman facing an unplanned pregnancy needs to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. So your first thought should be when you see her, well, I wonder if she's a disciple of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. The child growing inside of her needs to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The guy who got her pregnant needs to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, by focusing that way, you don't lose the material support or political engagement because 1 John 3.17 says what? If your brother and sister is in need and you have no pity, then the love of God is not in you. In other words, you're not a disciple maker. So you, you can't be a disciple maker without meeting material needs, right? But you can meet material needs without being a disciple maker. Same thing on political engagement. Like we know the government is the civil society, the government, God orchestrates that for the affairs of man, right? And we as people of the book have to hold the government accountable to be just and merciful, especially to who? The most vulnerable, right? So as Christians, we have to engage there, but you can be, have political engagement without doing discipleship, but you can't have discipleship without doing political right. engagement. So what it does is it frames this issue, like when Jesus had that coin and he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar and unto God what is God's. It frames this whole uh, good work that we do under the lens of discipleship. And once that happens, then you realize that it's in the church, that the call to someone facing a pregnancy decision is actually a missionary work and that we're finding them 
with this unplanned pregnancy, it's an opportunity to make disciples. Now, lest you think my theology is like stretching it, here's the thing. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Why? Based on an unplanned pregnancy from a human perspective. Mary was a disciple of Jesus Christ. Why? Because of her unplanned pregnancy. She was at the cross. Mm -hmm. So God used an unplanned pregnancy in Mary's life to what end? That, she, that Mary might become a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you and I would become disciples of mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. I believe he is still doing exactly the same thing today. But we as Christians have to see it that way and not allow ourselves to be sucked into a political narrative or a material support narrative that's devoid or linked rather from a discipleship framework. And that's just so significant. Once that happens, that four, 3,000 pregnancy centers gets multiplied because there's 400,000 plus churches, if you will. And if just 1% of churches viewed it that way, then guess what? We have all these additional points of compassion to come alongside people and offer them compassion, hope, help, and discipleship. And that's so key. So what is the roadblock? Why isn't this happening? Is it because some people in church are pro-life and some people aren't and they don't want to get in arguments with the congregation or with their pastor? Why isn't this happening? I mean, like you said, it's easy to sort of say, let's give to, you know, Compassion International, let's give to, you know, Food for the Hungry, whatever. But when you talk about really engaging with CareNet and crisis pregnancy centers from within the church why isn't it happening well i think i think there's there's two things and one is certainly a, a vision thing and a vision thing in the, in this sense that pastors preaching about the life issue as a discipleship issue that, and that's not something that necessarily happens for example i did a uh, pastor's event um, we did the first ever pro-life men's conference at dr tony evans church earlier this year and we had a pastor's event as part of that about 90 pastors i asked this question said how many of you became pastors because you wanted to overturn roe v wade these are all pro-life mm -hmm. pastors nobody raised mm -hmm. their hand then i said how many became pastors because you wanted to end abortion in your lifetime nobody raised their hand then I said, how many became pastors because you felt called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples for Jesus Christ? Every hand in the room shot up, right? And what does that tell you? That unless pastors see the life issue primarily as a discipleship issue, right. then the congregation is not going to see it that way either. And frankly, framing it as a discipleship issue brings the pro-choice people and the pro-life people together in your church. Because even if you're pro-choice, that should mean, right, you should be, look, it's supposed to mean, well, I'm indifferent, whether she gives birth or has an abortion. I think both of those are God-honoring. Now, you don't, you don't have to agree with it, but you got to mm -hmm. understand it, which means that helping a woman who's facing a pregnancy decision and wants to bring her child into the world is a responsibility of pro-choice people as much as it is a, a responsibility of pro-life people. So that's actually the Venn diagram that connects your pro-life and pro-choice people supporting women facing pregnancy decisions who want to bring their children into the world. And I would submit that most women who face pregnancy decisions actually want mm -hmm. to do that. They don't want to have abortions. They're not seeking that. It's the missing support, if you will, that really drives them towards that decision. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that there hasn't really been a practical tool to help make that mm -hmm. happen. So we developed a resource called Making Life Disciples. Making Life Disciples, that you can go to makinglifedisciples.com. We developed this in partnership with Dr. Tony Evans. And the goal of Making Life Disciples is to train folks within the church in small groups to come alongside someone who's facing a pregnancy decision. 
And this is especially critical in situations where she doesn't have a guy who says, I'll be a husband to you and a father to the child growing inside of us. So think about all the small groups that we have in churches. We tend to be about us loving us. What if your small group got trained and became about us loving them? And you came alongside this woman from conception to birth that's facing this pregnancy decision and said, we are going to walk alongside you, not just until the baby's born. But ongoing. Why? Because the goal is to make a disciple, to help her become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so if she chooses abortion, we're still going to love you because you need to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And at some point you're going to realize that and you're going to need to be forgiven and set free. And if she chooses to bring her child into the world, if it's a couple, now you mentor that couple to help them build a strong marriage. If she's a single mom, then you have her in church. So her boys like me, like when I was a little black boy growing up in a single mother home, I saw men who were husbands and fathers. Therefore, when I got my girlfriend pregnant, the thought of being a baby daddy wasn't even in my Rolodex. I, like in my mind, it wasn't even, didn't even connect. Why? Because I saw me, men being husbands and fathers. And, and the other reason why this is so critically important, churches all around this country will send people to uh, short-term missions. We'll send them to another country, right? Now, you would never send them to a short-term missions trip without giving them cross-cultural training. We'd never do that. Now, I always do this with parents. I say, how many of you considered killing your children. Now, in the teen years, it can be a little touch and go for a couple of years. <laughs> we won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> right, you know, a couple of week moments yeah. there, but I always have to put a disclaimer around the teen years. There's that yeah. moment, right? But seriously, and, and parents are like, I never considered, I would never kill one of my mm-hmm. children. Never. There's no way. And I couldn't understand. Right. What the woman who is having an abortion, who's planning to have one, she is planning to kill one of her children. She is told the folks who are going to kill it where it's going to be. She's paid for, she's given them cover. I mean, think about that. That is a foreign concept for you. Now, how are you gonna minister to a person who's in that mindset when you've never been there? Well, that's what Making Life Disciples says. It's cross-cultural training for someone who's faced, so you know how to minister to someone who's facing a pregnancy decision. And as more and more churches do that, guess what? 1% of churches do what Mm -hmm. I'm talking about. That's four or 5,000 more points of passion in communities. That's the mobilization that needs to happen in a post-Roe environment, especially, but also, frankly, even before Roe was overturned, which is what we've been talking about for a number of years. Right. We don't have much time left, but very quickly, ha, very quickly, how has life in the, um, the CareNet world changed since Roe v. Wade was overturned? <laughs> I know you have 24-7 security now, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's been part of it. And, and that's been tough. The rejection for from family members and friends has been hard on people doing this mm-hmm. work. Um, we, you and I talked about yeah. that a little bit. And uh, it's sort of like the Judas kiss, you know, other folk can kiss you. But when Judas does, it, it kind of leaves a mark. So that's been very difficult uh, to deal with. But I think practically in terms of that, I mean, people are absolutely energized because more and more people are coming and more and more people are interested in maybe looking at, at options that it could be life life affirming. So we've been incredibly busy in that regard. And and frankly, we've had to adjust. I mean, the other side is pushing the abortion pill mm-hmm. aggressively. I mean, they view abortion as a morally neutral consumer product that women want and need. And so they market the abortion pill like you market any other consumer product. And so there there's that's aggressive. And what that means is that the window between a time when a woman confirms her pregnancy to the time that she actually schedules and sometimes has an abortion has, has shrunk. The other thing that we're seeing is women who have taken the abortion pill and regret it. And the other thing that we're seeing is women who've taken the abortion pill, completed the abortion and did this DIY abortion and you've delivered 
you know, a, I mean, it's, it's just horrible. And they are absolutely traumatized. They had no idea that they were going to be able to see fingers and toes and all of that. And it's, and just how harsh this is uh, on the other side in terms of, you say you care for women. I mean, it's just, so that piece, the tr trauma that's going to happen for that and that's happening from that uh, is significant. And those folks, a lot of times are people who maybe have called a pregnancy center and they've gone through it and, and now they need care. So our, again, we, when you view it as a discipleship mm -hmm. issue, right, Peter rejected Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He restored him. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? In other words, he restored him to a covenant relationship. Someone who faces an abortion decision, we want to do the same thing. And in fact, we have a ministry called called Forgiven and Set Free, which is a Bible study, which you can find at our website, care-net.org, which is really for post-abortive folks. So we have a comprehensive approach for folks who are pre-abortive and post-abortive uh, to offer them compassion, hope, and help that only comes from uh, Jesus Christ and the gospel that he gave us all. I love it. I have so many more questions, but we don't have time. So I want to, yeah, well, I want to thank right. you, Roland, for coming. This has been so, so enlightening. And uh, where can people find out more about what you're doing and maybe get involved in the discipleship work? Sure. Two places. One is our website, care-net.org care-net.org. And the other place that you can go, particularly for Making Life Disciples, uh, is makinglifedisciples.com. Makinglifedisciples.com. You can go there to learn how to start a Making Life Disciples group in, in your church. The, the resource is a small group. You can do it remotely. There's an online version. Lots of different ways that you can access that. But to turn your pro-life passion into action, uh, that leads to discipleship, that's a critical, critical tool. We're delighted that God's given us the ability to, to push that out into the public square. We, The body of Christ, uh, when it mobilizes, you know, the gates of hell, you know what they say about those <laughs> exactly. when the army of God goes against it. So that's what's got to happen. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, and I hope you have a great day. Same to you. Thanks so much. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Roland Warren. I strongly suggest you check out CareNet. Let's go over my points to ponder. One, if your daughter experiences an unwanted pregnancy, don't panic. Reassure her that you're there to help. Don't shame her or get angry. I know this is hard, but do your best. When she first finds out she's pregnant, she will panic. So you stay calm for her. When she's ready, take her to a pregnancy care center near you. There, they'll help her, and many can do an ultrasound to show her her baby. They do not advocate for abortion. They help girls give their babies up for adoption and then walk them through the process. Two, always try to involve the father. Many fathers feel left out, but the truth is it's their baby too. Many dads may not care about the baby, so you step up and talk to him if he's a good guy, about supporting your daughter. Three, realize that the person who influences your daughter's decisions about abortion is her boyfriend. We may say we want women to have rights to abort, but fail to see that in most cases, she's not making the decision. Her boyfriend is. So support her and encourage her that adoption is a very viable and wise choice. I want to thank my guest, Roland Warren, for joining me on the show today. You can follow him at care-net.
care-net.org. Once again, that's care-net.org. You can also follow Roland on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Roland Warren in your internet browser. So let's review my points to ponder. One, if your daughter experiences an unwanted pregnancy, don't panic. Two, always try to involve the father. And three, realize that the person who influences a girl's decision about abortion is her boyfriend. Friends, if you need help, encouragement, or answers to any questions about your kids or your relationship with them, go to meekerparenting.com. I have courses, tips, blogs, and more to help you. And if you know a dad who needs encouragement while you're there, check out my brand new Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters Masterclass. And always remember, great kids are raised, not born.